investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome investors to episode nine of the Absolute Return podcast. Today is April 12th, 2019. And as you may know from last week's episode, April 12th is the second official Brexit day, which obviously didn't happen. Luckily that can's been kicked down the road to October 31st. So hopefully we don't have to talk about that anymore. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessler. And we got a lot of cool subjects to talk about this week. Off the top, Disney announced a new streaming service. We chat about what it's all about and the effect on Netflix. Uber filed for an IPO. We talk about that company and the stock. Saudi Aramco issued... 12 billion in bonds amidst 100 billion in demand. We talk about how those bonds have been trading. Big deal in the energy space with Chevron buying Anadarko in a $50 billion merger. Finally, some macro stuff with the FOMC minutes and the implications on interest rates. Lastly, we're going to chat about a blog post that we released this week regarding the magazine indicator. Huge news in the media space today. Disney announced its new Disney Plus streaming service. Now, what this is, it's a Netflix competitor uh, online streaming service. It's going to launch in November at only $6.99 per month, which is nearly half the price of Netflix. Uh, some day one content, they'll have 18 Pixar films all Star Wars films, which is pretty huge if you're a Star Wars fan, 250 plus hours of National Geographic content, which I love, you know, I love those nature shows, 13 Disney Vault classics, 30 seasons of The Simpsons. I mean, what's not to like there? They'll also likely look to bundle this with ESPN streaming offering as well. We don't really have any details on that. As I indicated, this is a real big threat to Netflix here. What Disney has been doing is licensing some of their content to Disney, or, or sorry, to Netflix. Um, why don't you talk about the details behind that and the, and the financial implications? Yeah, yeah. I guess the one aspect is that they're actually foregoing about $150 million in licensing revenue this fiscal year by analyst estimates uh, for that figure. And that's by pulling some content from... Netflix. Yes, yes. And right. so it's it's actually a good example of Bob Iger not thinking just for the short term. Yeah, as, by Bob, Bob Iger's CEO of Disney. Yes. It, yeah, it's a good example of just not thinking for the short term implications as this could be very value and big value enhancement for the future with a bit of short term pain. Well, certainly. And some of those long term projections that they threw out. So they said by 2024, they expect to have 60 to 90 million subscribers. And by that time, they'll be dumping $2 billion uh, per year on content. So some pretty significant content spent. Speaking of uh, CEO Bob Iger, back in February, he called streaming the company's number one priority. And so clearly this is a pretty massive move that, that Disney has. Uh, so far, they're just announcing the U.S. version, but internationally, the plan is to roll out internationally, globally throughout 2021. As for the uh, stock market reaction, some pretty interesting moves. Obviously bullish for Disney and bearish for uh, Netflix. We saw Disney stock 
as of uh, this afternoon, up 10.4%, the biggest move uh, in Disney in a very long time. And Netflix down 4.4%. So obviously Netflix shareholders not really liking the threat of Disney. In my opinion, a better service at nearly half the price. So certainly quite the competition coming out for Netflix. And when you mention the price, it, it is at that low $6.99 per month is where it's starting out at. But I do believe that they have plenty of untapped pricing power where over time you'll probably see that delta between Netflix and Disney Plus. That'll likely decrease in the future as they do have quite a bit of pricing power. The other aspect that I wanted to bring up was Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. They have always said you know, great things about Bob Iger, that they look up to him as a, as a CEO. But a little bit of history on their relationship between Buffett and Disney was Buffett, when he was running his investment partnership back in the 60s, he actually bought a 5% stake in Disney in the late 60s and sold it just a year later for a 50% return, Ouch. which <laughs> which looks great. You know, it's a, it's a mistake of if he had held that all the way till today, that's you know a billion dollar mistake. But probably, probably more than that. Yeah, absolutely. 5% of Disney. Yeah, absolutely. And so what, one thing that I was, wanted to bring up was, you know, with Buffett and Munger dis describing Disney in favorable terms all the time, Munger refers to Disney as an oil company that pumps money from the ground and then puts it back into the ground to pump again. What do you think of the possibility of Berkshire acquiring Disney? Well, Buffett's always quite sensitive on valuation and price. Uh, so I, I'm not sure if Disney would be cheap enough. Uh, he usually likes to pay 10 times pre-tax earnings. And he always says he's searching for that elephant and they now have north of $100 billion in cash. But who knows, Disney might be uh, a bit of a, too big of a target for Berkshire here. It would be a pretty cool acquisition if they did it. But who knows? I mean, you never know on, on some of these things. As you know, he has an itchy trigger finger looking for a big acquisition. And so I think if we see uh, the market really sell off and equity prices come down, he's much more likely to do a deal. But where, with the market where it is, I think any sort of deal out of Buffett's kind of unlikely. Big step for Uber this week as they filed the S1 or prospectus for their upcoming initial public offering. As everyone knows, Uber is the market leader in ride sharing, but what you may not know is they have a lot of additional businesses, including bike and scooter rentals, obviously Uber Eats, freight hauling, and another sort of nascent self-driving car division, which is where they see the, the future of transportation, where they don't actually need drivers anymore. So, Uber operates in more than 70 countries. Some details behind the IPO. They're reportedly raising $10 billion at a $100 billion valuation. Now this is below previously rumored valuation of 120 billion, which came down since Lyft's IPO because Lyft IPO at 72, rallied up to about 80 bucks a share, and now they're down to 60. So keep that in mind, Lyft IPO really hasn't performed well. That's really dialed back expectations behind this Uber IPO. Comparing that 
reported or rumored $100 billion valuation. For example, they recently did uh, financing in the private market at $76 billion. So private market investors certainly liking that uptick in valuation. They're expected to kick off their investor roadshow at the end of the month with uh, pricing and listing shortly thereafter. So we're likely to see a public Uber in May. As for financial performance, last year had re- revenue north of $11 billion, gross bookings of $50 billion, but a pre- pretty massive operating loss north of negative $3, $3 billion. They have 91 million users, but I think growth is somewhat slowing here. And the other thing of concern is that they may never earn a profit. Is that what you read in the S1? Yeah, yeah. Going through the S1, they actually showed a net income, an accounting profit of $997 million. But as you had mentioned, have an operating loss of $3.03 billion in 2018. And so the difference between this is the result of $5 billion in other income, which is listed in their financials as divestures and unrealized gains in investments. So those really aren't normal course operations. So in terms of their continuing earnings, they will likely normalize to that, yeah, to the negative number. The other aspect that's interesting is that Uber Eats has really, that Uber has shown Uber Eats as being a real center of growth for the company moving forward. And, but what you're actually seeing is that it's actually been declining quarter over quarter, declining. It's actually only has about 165 million in uh, quarterly revenue. So that's a declining growth rate. Yes, yes. Oh, actually, no, just declining in general from a high of 200, 218 million in Q2 down to 165 million. Oh, so revenue is actually declining. Yes. Which Negative is, growth. Yeah, which is quite interesting as mm. this is an area where there's competitors in the space uh, that are growing quite rapidly. It's interesting that Uber Eats hasn't taken, that the growth rate is decreasing now. Yeah, there's just so much competition in that space. Mm-hmm. It's pretty crazy. The other interesting aspect that Bloomberg actually pointed out was the funny distinction between market share and category position. So they represent themselves as having less than 1% market share in the US. So implying that they have a very long growth runway. Mm-hmm. The other, but while also boasting that they have a 65% category position in the U.S. So it seems like they're kind of trying to have the best of both worlds where they're saying that they're in a dominant duopoly where there could be pricing power, but also that there's a massive untapped market, which is kind of an interesting juxtaposition there. By the untapped market, they mean people driving their own cars. Yes, yes. Uber is going to replace that. Interesting. Make no mistake about it. This is a huge IPO, $10 billion. It'll be the largest since 2014, which was Alibaba's IPO that raised $25 billion. Another interesting aspect to this deal is that they're reserving some IPO shares for drivers who complete a certain number of trips. Wanted to just touch on ownership. So Japanese giant SoftBank owns 16.3% of Uber. Saudi Arabia's public investment fund owns uh, roughly 5%. Another interesting fact is that Google owns 5% of Uber and competitor Lyft. So some interesting competitive dynamics there. And founder Travis Kalanick still remains with uh, 8.6% stake. So those people are certainly pretty happy uh, with some liquidity upon IPO here. 
Saudi oil giant Saudi Aramco issued a $12 billion in bonds amidst $100 billion in demand. So talk about oversubscription here. Not just the deal size I wanted to talk about with respect to this uh, bond offering. They actually disclosed some financial information behind Aramco. Wasn't surprising, but the scale of the numbers, you, you can't help but be shocked. They're tremendously profitable. Aramco is by far the most profitable company in the world. Talk about numbers here. They had EBITDA, I believe, north of 200 billion, free cash flow of 86 billion, net income north of 100 billion. That exceeds the former or the most profitable public company, Apple, by a significant margin. Talking about the scale of Aramco, they pump one in eight barrels of oil globally, which is pretty significant. So it just shows their market share, which is obviously massive. I wanted to talk about this uh, bond issue in general. So they had pretty significant demand, but what actually happened was as demand, as they go through the book and salespeople indicate that it's oversubscribed, investors will actually boost their orders to an amount more than what they have because they want a certain amount, say they want 10 million in bonds, but if it's twice oversubscribed, then they'll subscribe to, or they'll order 20 million such that if they get haircut 50%, they'll get their original $10 million order. And as you know, these things can uh, spiral out of control into a positive feedback loop where demand keeps growing and growing because they think they'll get less and less of their orders. Yeah, and to quantify that artificial demand, there's estimates that the demand was artificially inflated by about 20 to 30%, which is quite interesting. The other interesting aspect is that, number one, was that, that some institutions were actually moving from the, so, the sovereign Saudi bonds to Aramco, mm-hmm. uh, but as well, there, and also that they were priced below the sovereign yields, um, which is quite interesting. Yeah, so they had lower yields yeah, than the low, government bonds. A lower cost of capital than than their government, which uh-huh. is which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other aspect in terms of the pricing and demand of the offering is that there are many managers that are actually forced to buy the bond. So they're forced buyers, despite even if they viewed it as overpriced, because it's going to be included in all of the major bond indices. Looking at the order book, $100 billion in demand on a $12 billion deal. Initially, it was a $10 billion deal. You would think this would be a really hot issue, but when it hit the market, it hit with a thud and actually traded down. So a lot of that demand was artificial. It was somewhat illusory, some sell-side dynamics in the in the pricing, trying to make the deal hot, trying to get a lot of demand for it. But trading around 97, 98 cents on the dollars, not down massively, but still not what you want to see on a supposedly massively oversubscribed deal. Massive deal in the energy space with Chevron striking a deal to buy Anadarko in a $50 billion transaction, $33 billion on an equity basis. Consideration is $65 per share per or per Anadarko share. This was a, at a premium of 39%. The strategic rationale behind the deal, it expands Chevron's shale drilling ambitions makes it uh, a large entity, almost as big as ExxonMobil, the biggest producer aside from Aramco in the world. 
Together, the two companies, Chevron and Anadarko, will produce 3.6 million barrels per day, clearly putting them in the top four senior, super senior entities, Exxon, now Chevron, Shell, and BP. Got a quote from Chevron's chairman and CEO. He stated, the combination of Anadarko's premier high quality assets with our advantage portfolio strengthens our leading position in the Permian, builds on our deep water Gulf of Mexico capabilities and will grow our LNG business. As for the stock market reaction, Anadarko shares unsurprisingly were up 32.2%. Obviously, Anadarko shareholders pretty happy with this deal, although the shares have been under pressure for quite a while. On the back of the deal, Chevron shares down 5.1%. What are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I actually quite liked some of the language that Chevron's CEO was using that is somewhat atypical of the uh, energy industry, saying that they're not as concerned about being the largest producer and that really it's more important for them to generate shareholder value, which is comforting to hear from an industry that over the entire life cycle has destroyed capital. Yeah, not just growth for growth's sake, but really high grading their portfolio, focusing on uh, return on capital, high returns for shareholders, right? Absolutely. And then in, in terms of the deal dynamics, what do you see any potential for an overbid? Looking at you know this, this scale, you would think the only competitors that could overbid would be Exxon, Shell, you know, those types of players. Do you see any possibility of that? I think that's uh, unlikely. I mean, the scale of this deal is just so massive that the larger the deal you go, the less competition you have in terms of competitive acquirers. Shell recently did a massive deal a number of years ago buying BG, so they're likely out of the picture on a big deal for a while. Exxon and BP, they tend to have different strategies. So I think this is really a nice acquisition for Chevron, fits well into their portfolio. You can never count it out. Really, the market isn't pricing in an overbid. I believe when I checked, the merger arbitrage spread was roughly around 7 to 8% annualized, just pricing in standard deal risks. But uh, interesting deal. I'll keep you apprised of any news on this one. And as for the energy industry, we really needed to see some consolidation. So perhaps here it is. And I would note the assets uh, on this deal focused in the Permian Basin, which has been a really hot play. And notice that there really has been no deals in Canada over the past number of years, which shows the lack of interest from these super majors in investing in the Canadian energy sector just due to government policies, lack of market access, due to no building of pipelines. So another interesting dynamic there. And Chevron CEO, he did he did try to portray that this deal was more than just about the Permian assets that, for example, the Mozambique uh, LNG facility right. that, that they have, that there are other assets. But I think the true focus was the Permian assets, um, you know, just by the, the overall deal. Certainly, it's a very profitable oil play these days. FOMC minutes were released this week showing that the Federal Reserve is unlikely to raise rates this year. Federal Open Market Committee several participants noted that the current target range for the federal funds rate was close to their estimates of its longer run neutral level and foresaw economic growth continuing near its longer run trend rate over the forecast period. Now we discussed the notion 
of neutral level of interest rates a number of episodes ago, which is an interesting topic because what central bankers have been trying to do over the past number of years is, quote, normalize interest rate policy. Whereas after the credit crisis of 08, 09, central banks throughout the world really took down their benchmark rates to near to zero or near zero levels, really emergency low interest rates, and they've been trying to get them back to so-called neutral rate. Now, this neutral rate is up for debate, and what seems to be happening is instead of hiking rates, central bankers have been lowering their estimate of the neutral rate, which is a, a pretty interesting concept, and it has implications for rate hikes. But what's clear on the, the Fed's recent meeting is that it seems highly unlikely that they will be raising rates this year. Another interesting quote, they say, several participants noted that their views of the appropriate range for the federal funds rate could shift in either direction based on incoming data and other developments. Ultimately, they're leaving themselves uh, an escape hatch. If inflation does pick up, that gives them the ability to not necessarily flip-flop, but change with the data. Yeah, and it looks like that the markets are pricing in about a 55% chance of a rate cut by the end of the year. Um, not really, they really aren't taking the view that there's any possibility of a rate increase, which makes sense given some of the political pressures that the Fed is under currently. Uh, but as well, the other aspect is that the committee also approved a plan that would have the bond reduction on the, or bond reductions on their balance sheet mm -hmm. halted by September. So do you, do you think this is a prudent move? Well, I think the Fed is best off being flexible, which clearly they are. Contrast that to Q4 of last year when they indicated that rate hikes will be somewhat automated, as would the balance sheet runoff. This would combine to create tighter financial conditions, which obviously the markets didn't like. S&P 500 tanked. 20%. Obviously, Donald Trump was not happy with the way things going, and the Fed really did a complete 180 degrees on that, on both rates and the balance sheet runoff. One thing that you mentioned is now the Fed sees likely no rate hikes this year, but the market is pricing in over a 50% chance of rate cuts this year. So there's a bit of a dichotomy in between what the market thinks and what the Fed thinks. So it'll be an interesting dynamic to follow to see ultimately who's right. Absolutely. And I think it'll just be a more data dependent Fed as opposed to, as you mentioned, something that's more algorithmic and automated. Yeah. And what's interesting is looking at the data as the markets tanked last year, the chances of a price or the chances of an interest rate cut increased dramatically. But now with the S&P 500 back near all-time highs, you haven't seen the opposite reaction. You would expect the probability of rate cuts to come down, but it just hasn't happened. Put out a blog post this week entitled, The Magazine Indicator Just Flash Red. Should you sell everything? Some background on the magazine indicators. The 1970s were a tough market for stocks. Basically, just treaded water. I believe 73, 74 was a pretty punishing bear market. And by the end of the decade, people were really just fed up with stocks, people in general. And in 1979, Business Week released uh, one of the regular publications had a title, a now infamous cover, called The Death of Equities. 
Now, people point to this as being the birth of the magazine indicator, but it didn't happen right away. But in uh, a few years, the market really went on a generational tear from 1982 to the year 2000. Just that bull market wa was crazy. It went up multiple times and many people spoke of the Death of Equities magazine cover as a classic contrarian indicator. And by contrarian indicator, we mean if too many people are thinking one way, then that's more than priced into the market. So you can make money by acting in a contrarian nature or opposite of the crowd. The reason we bring this up is because last weekend, Barron's magazine released uh, their regular issue with a bull on the cover with the title, Is the Bull Unstoppable? Which was quite the bold, potentially flashing red magazine indicator that would concern a number of investors. I know I saw online a few economists, market participants, really giving Barron's crap for this one. I saw economist David Rosenberg tweeted, the front cover of Barron's, how perfect, the makings of a market talk. I also found a funny Reddit thread that said, Barron's says the bull market is unstoppable. Sell everything, sell, sell, sell. So you have some contrarians coming out of the woodwork. But as I indicated, this death of equities cover, the timing wasn't good at all. That came out in 1979. And by mid 1982, I believe the market was at the same level. So it's not much of an indicator if it's three years too early. The other thing is ultimately, there are always magazine covers coming out. I'm sure there's been a hundred bullish ones over the past 10 years and some bearish ones as well. And they've really had no indicative uh, value whatsoever. So I think one thing to keep in mind with these, obviously you don't want to sell everything. You don't want to make any dramatic changes to your asset allocation. But what you do want to do is you notice these things and Take it into your investment framework as a, a judgment of where we are in the cycle. If you start seeing a lot of very bullish behavior, I gave this example as in 1929, Joe Kennedy had his shoeshine boy give him stock tips. Uh, he, so he thought that things have gone way too far and there'd be no one else left to buy stocks. And so Joe Kennedy not only sold all his stocks, but went on to short the market and made a fortune in the great crash of 1929. Obviously, I'm not advising anyone to do that because that takes a significant amount of luck. But obviously, you want to have an asset allocation that can withstand any sort of drawdowns and note that the market has been on quite the tear and the valuations are quite high. And I think you bring up a good point in that there's never a bad time to look at risk management in your portfolio. So whether you actually you know, take actions and are selling off your entire portfolio, I think that's a drastic, drastic measure. But I think it's always good to be ensuring that you're comfortable with the risks of your current portfolio and perhaps high grading that. Certainly don't make any drastic moves. You'll want to have long-term capital allocation plans, a well-diversified portfolio. But to answer Baron's question, is the bull unstoppable? No. At some point, we do have to deal with bear markets. I mean, we just had one in December where the S&P 500 dropped 20%, and you can typically expect that once or twice per decade, and occasionally uh, a big one, down 50% like we had in 2008, 2009, and at the turn of the millennium. So keep that in mind uh, with your asset allocation. 
and just be comfortable with where your portfolio is at. And that's it for episode nine of the Absolute Return podcast. You can catch us next week. Feel free to visit our website, absolutereturnpodcast.com, and we'll speak with you soon. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast, Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.